0: From uh, about 15 years on up uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable we are all evil in some form or another and yes i am evil. not a hundred percent but i am evil. my mother was a, a sick angry hungry and very sad woman i hated her it. I wanted to love my mother this is serial killing a podcast hello again and welcome to serial killing a podcast where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode thank you so much you are truly appreciated and for anyone else please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. So quick announcement. I'm going to be at True Crime Fest in Rogers, Arkansas on May 20th. So if you are interested in going, the website for tickets is allthelostgirls.org. All one word. Also, if you are a facebook user a lovely listener created a fan page that i am very active on called serial killing a podcast fan group it would be cool if you would come and join us there as well if you'd like but either way i'd like to have a way to talk to you guys in an immediate format so if you don't follow me on instagram or facebook Leave a comment and let me know what social media platforms you use the most, and I'll join so that I can let you guys know things in a more immediate fashion. But anyway, back into it. This week's podcast was voted to be on Beth Thomas that most people know of as the Child of Rage. Much of my source information came from Law and Crime Network, as well as the now old documentary about Beth with actual interviews with her as a young child and from practicalpsychology.com. This one also goes without saying that it comes with my disclaimer disclaimer because we are going to discuss serious child abuse and situations that, if you don't have a stronger stomach for these things, you can skip this one. It's completely fine. You won't hurt my feelings. Trust me, it is fine. So, here we go. Her adoptive parents were Tim and Julie Tennant. Tim was a Methodist minister. The couple had tried to have children of their own, but had been unable to, and they, like many couples do, decided to adopt. And the adoption process can be long and a bit heartbreaking. According to adoptionservices.com, the total waiting period in a domestic child adoption depends on several factors, including the age, health, cultural heritage, race, and nationality of the child. It also depends on your child adoption budget, whether you find the child yourself, work with a private agency and attorney, or adopt through a state foster care adoption program. In general, waiting periods vary from about six months up to several years. Tim and Julie settled into what they thought would be a long wait. But in February 1984, Tim and Julie were told they could adopt Beth, who was around a year and a half old, and Beth's biological little brother, Jonathan, who was around seven months old, from social services. Doing the math... This would make Beth's birthday sometime in August 1982 and Jonathan in July of 1983. To say they were surprised is an understatement, as this had happened so very quickly after they had decided to adopt in the first place. The couple were told the children were happy and healthy children, no issues whatsoever. So, a bit about the children's background, what little they had had, considering how very young they were. Beth and Jonathan's biological mother had suffered from chronic kidney disease and had to be admitted into the hospital regularly. She died from complications of her kidney disease when Beth was around a year old, making Jonathan nearly a newborn. Unfortunately, this left little Beth and her infant brother under the sole care of their biological father. While most agree that it was most likely occurring prior to the mother dying, after, the father began seriously abusing at least young Beth. At some point, Beth was evaluated by a doctor who then called social services to report what he had seen. Their father, who was described as an alcoholic, having his two little children living in squalor, had routinely left them with very little or no food. And it was obvious to the doctor that little Beth had been physically and intensely sexually abused by her father. All of this within the year after her mother's death. When social services visited the home to intervene, Baby Jonathan was found in a filthy bassinet, soaked in his own urine and feces. The diaper he had been wearing hadn't been changed in a few days. There was a bottle at his feet, but the milk contained within had long curdled. It was said that the shape of his head was odd, flat on the back, and overall appearing to bulge in the front from laying there not being picked up or held for any period of time. He was unable to roll over on his own at all. The baby just seemed empty, not having had much of any stimulation in his brand new life. Beth had been regularly sexually abused to the point that she would bleed from, well, you know where. And again, her father had also verbally and physically abused her. And the icing on the cake was that baby Jonathan, and barely old enough to be considered a toddler Beth, were found completely alone in the home. Their father wasn't aware to be found. So Tim and Julie, again, had desperately wanted to have children, but had been unsuccessful and decided to adopt. They said that they had so much to give, so much love to offer, that they wanted to be able to share that with children. When they received beth and jonathan they were given very little information adopting children from social services would come with some common sense knowledge right so clearly the children had been taken out of a negative situation it was reasonable to assume there had been some form of abuse or neglect or the children wouldn't have been taken from their own home in the first place Tim and Julie felt that they would be prepared to take on any issues that arose and that structure, guidance, stability, consistently, and most importantly, love would be exactly what the children would need and the family would flourish. Oh, if that were only the case here. Nearly immediately, they knew the situation was far more serious. Jonathan was unable to lift his head, which is something babies learn quite quickly. Beth was attempting to harm the family pets. Things were truly beginning to get quite dark. So a couple of months in, they did reach out to learn more about the backstory of the children, and that's when they learned about the state of the children and what they had endured in their very short little lives. So as their lives began with the optimistic couple... What behaviors was Beth displaying? Beth, when she felt no one was looking, would later, in her own words, quote, stick 'em with pins. When asked what she was trying to do to the animals, she replied, kill 'em. Beth discovered a nest of baby birds and began to remove them from the nest. Julie and Tim figured she was just curious about them, as nearly all children are. Julie explained to Beth that she shouldn't do that, that she might accidentally hurt them, that the mother might not come back. They put the baby birds back in the nest. The next day, Julie found the baby birds on the ground outside of the nest, dead. Beth had killed each one of them. She admitted to squeezing each one until it was dead, one by one. Now, Tim and Julie both were completely shocked to discover that Beth, still so very young, had an uncontrollable urge to masturbate openly, even in public. This was unbelievably troubling to the couple, as would be natural, and as they asked her about it, She did her best to try to describe a recurring nightmare that she would have about a man that was falling on her and hurting her with a part of himself. That is how she described it. Beth indicated that her birth father was the one who had sexually abused her until her private area bled. She drew pictures with crayons showing her birth father touching her inappropriately and the face she drew of herself was crying she said that she had been scared when her birth father had entered her room at night when julie asked about how often beth would do this this masturbation julie replied daily beth reiterated that beth reiterated this by saying she did do this to herself every day until the area became raw and hurting so she would be taken to the doctor much to beth's irritation As time went on, Jonathan began waking up, screaming in the night that he was having intense pain in his stomach. As it turned out, he wasn't sick, and it wasn't residual feelings from nightmares. Beth was attacking him in his sleep by hitting him in the stomach. Tim and Julie became so concerned that they felt they had no option but to tie Beth's door shut at night for Jonathan's protection. When the couple took Beth to a child psychologist who specialized in children who have been through severe abuse and trauma in the first few years of their lives when she was six years old, she openly admitted that little Jonathan was terrified of her because she, quote, hurt him so much that she stuck pins in him to hurt him. Beth also talked about hurting her brother's private parts by pinching, squeezing, inserting her fingers, and kicking. When Jonathan begged her to stop, she refused to. Julie caught Beth molesting Jonathan on several occasions. And then things escalated to her openly wanting to end the life of both her parents as well as her little brother— She was caught in the basement with Jonathan once, banging his head into the concrete floor. One time, she hurt him so badly, he had to have stitches in his chin. Julie then began noticing that knives were missing out of the kitchen. Actual, several paring knives, which are smaller knives that would have fit little Beth's hand pretty good. Beth later admitted to taking the knives from the drawer or from the dishwasher with the full intention of killing her brother and her parents. She told the psychologist that she would kill them by stabbing them with a knife during the night because she didn't want them to see her doing it. And when asked why, she said that, and keep in mind that during this interview she was only six years old, She said that it was because she was hurt so badly, and she did not want to be around people. It appeared that Beth simply did not have a conscience, so it was at this point that she would begin some therapies to try to see if they could do anything to help young Beth. So let's take the time to look at what happened to her and how the infant and young child's mind attempts to process this kind of unthinkable trauma. Now first, we must remember that all of this horrific abuse happened within just the first year and a half of her life. So wrap your mind around that. We don't know what kind of relationship she had with her mother prior to her birth mother's death. We just don't have that information. What we do know is that after her mother's death, the sexual, verbal, and physical abuse was happening. I would dare to speculate that the birth father had begun the abuse before the mother's death, and the mother's dying left him wide open to take that abuse to the next level. Do I know that to be gospel? Of course not, but that's my guess. So unless her mother was loving and doting during that first year of Beth's life, and let's all just hope that she was, Beth did not know love. She certainly didn't receive any after her mother's death. Child abuse can be a one-time occurrence, but most often it is a pattern of behavior involving regular physical attacks or acts of deprivation and molestation. Frequently, the longer the child abuse occurs, the more serious the consequences. And of course we know the outward signs of child abuse are unexplained bruises, abrasions, burns, broken bones, black eyes, cuts, bite marks, and other injuries. The child will often display changes in their normal behavior. Perhaps a chatty child will become very quiet and appear sad or very angry and might display behaviors such as being afraid of their parents or other adults. Children may cry and fuss, not wanting to go to or act frightened of, say, you know, daycare people or other adults emotional abuse leans more toward the parent treating the child in a way that makes them feel unwanted or like a bad person so much that the child's normal development learning or behavior suffers this may include harshly criticizing or frequently blaming the child or making the child feel again unwanted behavioral changes seen in the child are often shunning a parent's affections or the opposite becoming excessively clingy, or acting angry or depressed. Abused children often show extremes in behaviors. An example, a normally outgoing and assertive child may become unusually compliant and passive, while a generally mild child may behave in a way that is demanding and aggressive all of a sudden and still other children become less talkative or nearly stop communicating entirely. Some begin to show signs of a speech disorder, such as stuttering. They may act either adult or infantile inappropriately for their age. There is also the chance of being delayed physically or emotionally, walking or talking later than expected or continuing to have regular temper tantrums. Complaints of headaches are common as well. And then we have the sexual abuse. We all know sexual abuse is distinguished by someone performing sexual acts on a child or forces the child to perform sexual acts on them. This includes touching a child in what we all consider our private areas. The effects of that include the child experiencing pain, itching, bleeding, or bruising around the genital area. They may have difficulty walking or sitting, most likely due to pain in the front and lower back regions. Guys, side note I don't use some of the technical terms because I don't want perverts getting off on what I'm saying. I digress. The child may suffer from recurring urinary tract infections, which was one of my symptoms when I was little. They may be reluctant to remove outer clothing like a coat or sweater on a hot day and may insist on wearing added layers. These children will often demonstrate sexual knowledge, curiosity, and behavior beyond their age or be obsessively curious about sexual matters or even try to behave in a seductive way to their peers or other adults. And, of course, there are age regression behaviors as well, often noted. This is all according to an article written for thewholechild.org. So let's discuss serious childhood neglect. According to an article coming from Harvard University, quote, the absence of responsive relationships poses a serious threat to a child's development and well-being. Sensing threat activates biological stress response symptoms and excessive activation of those systems can have a toxic effect on developing brain circuitry. When the lack of responsiveness persists, the adverse effects of toxic stress can compound the lost opportunities for development associated with limited or ineffective interaction. This complex impact of neglect on the developing brain underscores why it is so harmful in the earliest years of life. It also demonstrates why effective early interventions are likely to pay significant dividends in better long-term outcomes in educational achievement, lifelong health, and successful parenting of the next generation." End quote. Now, fear and anxiety affects the brain architecture of learning and memory. With regards to the prefrontal cortex, which is the part mostly behind your forehead and eyes, and it is the center of executive functions, regulating thought, emotions, and actions, this region is especially vulnerable to elevation of brain chemicals caused by stress. And if you've been with me for a while, you should understand how the whole brain is obviously important, but especially the importance of this area in particular. Another super important area when it comes to what we've talked about so very many times in the past is the amygdala, which is these like two little bean-sized areas that are kind of just a bit higher than the ears internally below and under the prefrontal cortex. The amygdala triggers emotional responses, detecting whether a stimulus is threatening. Elevated cortisol levels, which is a stress hormone caused by stress, can affect activity there. Now, science tells us that young children who experience significantly limited caregiver responsiveness may sustain a range of adverse physical and mental health consequences that actually produce more widespread developmental impairments than overt physical abuse. These can include cognitive delays, stunting of physical growth, guys, impairments in executive function and self-regulation skills, and disruption of the body's stress response. With more than a half million documented cases in the U.S. in 2010 alone, neglect accounts for 78% of all child maltreatment cases nationwide, far more than physical abuse at 17%, sexual abuse at 9%, and psychological abuse, 8%, combined. Despite these compelling findings, child neglect receives far less public attention than either physical abuse or sexual exploitation and a lower proportion of mental health services. Studies on children in a variety of settings show that severe deprivation or neglect disrupts the ways in which children's brains develop and process information, increasing the risk for attentional, emotional, cognitive, and behavioral disorders. It also alters the development of biological stress response systems, leading to greater risk for anxiety, depression, cardiovascular problems, and other chronic health impairments later in life. It also correlates with significant risk for emotional and interpersonal difficulties, including high levels of negativity poor impulse control, and personality disorders, as well as low levels of enthusiasm, confidence, and assertiveness. It's associated with significant risk for learning difficulties and poor school achievement, including deficits in executive function and attention regulation, low IQ scores, poor reading skills, and low rates of high school graduation. The negative consequences of deprivation and neglect can be reversed or at least reduced through appropriate and timely interventions, but merely removing a child from an insufficiently responsive environment does not guarantee positive outcomes. Children who experience severe deprivation typically need therapeutic intervention and highly supportive care to mitigate the adverse effects and facilitate recovery. And let's not lose sight of the fact that Beth endured all of these types of abuse, all of them, with the added bonus of not receiving any love, no real reward, barely any food or any type of care. And when she did receive adult intervention, it was emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. So she was given the diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder. The first two years of a child's life are crucial for developing a sense of attachment and a conscience. Beth did not get that opportunity and developed Reactive Attachment Disorder, or RAD, RAD. An RAD diagnosis is given only to children with the most severe attachment issues. To give you a frame of reference, serial killer Peter Woodcock also had reactive attachment disorder, and I have covered him if you are interested in his story. It was about a year back. According to the National Library of Medicine National Center for Biotechnology Information, as well as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition that a listener so kindly sent me, states classifies reactive attachment disorder as a trauma and stressor-related condition of early childhood caused by social neglect and maltreatment. Affected children have difficulty forming emotional attachments to others, show a decreased ability to experience positive emotion, cannot seek or accept physical or emotional closeness, and may react violently when held, cuddled, or comforted. Behaviorally, affected children are unpredictable, difficult to console, and difficult to discipline. Moods fluctuate erratically, and children may seem to live in a fight, flight, or freeze mode. Most have a strong desire to control their environment and make their own decisions. This activity describes the evaluation. Diagnosis and management of reactive attachment disorder and stresses the role of team based interprofessional care for affected patients. End quote. So, a big take, not the biggest takeaway, but a big takeaway from this is control. They have a strong desire for control of their environment and their own decisions. So even with intervention, injured children encounter difficulties in every aspect of their lives, from classroom learning to developing a secure sense of self. The traumatic situations which lead to the attachment disorder create a persistent state of stress, diminishing their capacity for resilience. Early identification and treatment have been shown to improve outcomes. However, parent education and support are Key. Parents adopting children from state custody or from overseas orphanages should receive education on the impact of social deprivation and connecting with social agencies or service agencies or providers specializing in attachment disorders. So, treatment strategies include encouraging the child's development by being nurturing, responsive, and caring. That makes sense providing consistent caregivers to encourage a stable attachment for the child, providing a positive, stimulating, and interactive environment for the child, addressing the child's medical, safety, and housing needs as appropriate. Other services that may benefit the child and the family include individual and family psychological counseling, education of parents and caregivers about the condition, and parenting skill classes. I know that was a whole lot of science thrown at you, but you get the gist. This isn't a joke. So what treatment did Beth get? Well, in 1989, when she was seven years old, she was moved to sort of an inpatient facility designed to help children with attachment disorders. The children here are a danger to others as well as themselves. One must remember that. This situation is fairly dire for these children, or else the chances of them going on to be quite destructive or even hurt or even kill people later are pretty increased. A woman by the name of Nancy Thomas was at this facility and gave an interview about how people do not think children as young as nine years old could commit cold-blooded murder, but it happens. So what kinds of treatment would Beth receive at this facility? Nancy explained that the facility was extremely regimented, that every aspect of the child's life is controlled. RAD children do not trust and therefore cannot tolerate anyone trying to, quote, be the boss of them. The children have to ask to do any menial task, including using the restroom, to force that intimate interaction and to build trust. Nancy stated that the children believe that they are not good and real people, that they are, quote, of the devil, keeping in mind that this is her perspective. The facility also used a lot of positive reinforcement, For example, there was footage of Beth feeding some goats as Nancy described that when the children do their chores to completion and to a high degree, there are rewards for that behavior so that the children will learn that they are important and have value, especially when they can be trusted. It was said that after a few months in this environment, Beth seemed to slowly trust. She began accepting affection and was more predictably able to understand right and wrong, developing a moral compass, if you will. As she became more, I would describe it as independently trustworthy, developing her sense of self and getting, quote, better, she was allowed to attend public school and also went to the local church. Beth went from the facility having to put an alarm on her door so that she couldn't sneak around at night, To being able to completely eliminate that. She was shown with two lovebirds in her room and she was being affectionate to them. Nancy said that Beth enjoyed brushing a dog they had on site, so we were seeing some empathy developing. Beth was interviewed again after she had been at this facility for a while and asked about why she wanted to hurt Jonathan and her parents and she again reiterated that she had been hurt so badly by her birth father but that hurting others was hurting her quote good self the child psychologist asked her how she was feeling in that moment and she said sad as she seemed to be fighting actual real tears so after the last interview in 1989 beth seemed to nearly fall off the face of the earth for the most part but then in 2015 The now 32-year-old Beth granted an interview with the BBC. In it, she revealed that she had six other siblings in the birth home, she and Jonathan being the youngest, while her mother was going through dialysis for her kidney disease. She then goes on to discuss reactive attachment disorder. She did go on to college at the University of Colorado, though I don't know which campus specifically because they have campuses in all of the major cities in Colorado, but there she earned her bachelor's degree in nursing. I do not know what the genesis was, but eventually Nancy herself adopted Beth, but I could not find immediately at what age. I would venture to guess that she must have been quite young, because in the first interviews, Beth had a very strong Southern accent, but as an adult, there really isn't a hint of that accent in her voice. She said in the interview at 15 years old, she had some memories of her prior abuse come up, and she had to sort of revisit and reprocess those memories and experiences And when she began dating, she began experiencing some depression. So she went through EMDR therapy, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So what is that? Well, according to an article written for the Cleveland Clinic, EMDR treats mental health conditions that happen because of memories from traumatic events in someone's past. It's best known for its role in treating post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, but its use is expanding to include treatment of many other conditions. This method involves moving your eyes a specific way while you process traumatic memories. EMDR's goal is to help you heal from trauma or other distressing life experiences. Compared to other therapy methods, EMDR is relatively new. The first clinical trial investigating EMDR was actually, conveniently, in 1989. Dozens of clinical trials since EMDR's development show this technique is effective and can help a person faster than many other methods. And full disclosure, I have heard of this technique, but I'm not well versed in it. EMDR therapy doesn't require talking in detail about a distressing issue. Instead, it focuses on changing the emotions, thoughts, or behaviors that result from a distressing experience, or the trauma. This allows your brain to resume a natural healing process. While many people use the words mind and brain when referring to the same thing, they are actually different. Your brain is an organ of your body. Your mind is the collection of thoughts, memories, beliefs, and experiences that make you who you are. The way your mind works relies on the structure of your brain. That structure involves networks of communicating brain cells across many different areas. That's especially the case with sections that involve your memories and senses. That networking makes it faster and easier for those areas to work together. That's why your senses sight, sound, smell, taste, and feel can bring back strong memories. So EMDR relies on the Adaptive Information Processing Model, or AIP, which is a theory about how your brain stores memories. And you know, there's really a lot more to it, but for the purposes of this podcast, you get the gist. Beth also went on to get married in 2016, the year after she graduated college, but I wasn't able to find out anything about him either. Some sources say she lives in Flagstaff, Arizona and works in the neonatal ICU. Now, Nancy has a LinkedIn profile and I did find an Elizabeth Thomas connected to her, but that one shows living in Pennsylvania and still another source stated she was living in Colorado She and Nancy run an organization called Families by Design, where they claim to help other children with attachment issues. But... There are some very concerning controversies regarding Nancy, as she is linked to a couple of people who use things like forcibly holding a child down against their will, grabbing their face and raising their voices at these troubled children in a very menacing way, and it's not really used because the child is out of order, so to speak. To get into all of that would be the subject of a whole separate podcast, but I'll leave a link to a documentary about Beth as well as Nancy and her connections in the notes if you would like to see it for yourself. And quite honestly, I don't feel right about digging any further into Beth's current life. She deserves peace, so I think we should leave well enough alone. But what about Jonathan? Well, there really isn't any information out there either, at least anything that I would trust. I found a couple of sites that mention Julie and Tim Tennant, but I don't know that I really trust those either. So the timeline past this is a bit of a mystery. So tell me, guys, what do you make of this case? Does something not quite sit right with you about it as it does me? I don't know. What are your thoughts? What are your opinions? Just tell me, guys, what do you think? leave me a comment below or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. Um, please also let me know what other social medias that you use so that I can connect with you guys in a more immediate fashion, as I said. But most importantly, thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Uh, Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer, and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.